Hello, Scotty. Okay, let's do the checklist. Let's do the checklist. <laughs> Are the batteries fully charged? Is the recorder turned on? Is it in your hands? Are you dressed? Have you attached your brain? All these things are true, and I think I'm sensing quite a bit of meanness. It's not even a subtle meanness. It's like a full-on barrage. George, John, it's not meanness. It's called professionalism. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay, fine. Well, quick sip of coffee. <laughs> I, I, that's what I've been told the word is anyway. So, um, you know, anyway, before we get going, we, we, yeah, we, two, two friends of the show. I noticed. Uh, oh, well, maybe not friends, maybe. Um, Frenemies. You know, critics, critics, friendemies, yes. Friendemies of the show um, sort of enjoyed, sort of, well, or found amusing the uh, the cliffhanger uh, of, uh, that was caused by the incompetence of your last um uh, your last, uh, how should we say, faux pas? <laughs> That's um, French for so, fuck up. Yeah, you know, very, <laughs> very, very rarely do we get such, you know, um, uh, such enthusiastic feedback. So, you know, maybe batteries half charged, living on the edge, you know, brain not fully engaged should be the way to go. Should be, I think. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, we provide anyway, entertainment. Anyway, when we when we last left off. You you had said uh, you had said uh, something about um, you know uh, were you capable of doing math? Now obviously when it comes to working out how long you've got left on your batteries, the answer is no. But when it comes to the actual topic we were discussing, um, you know, John, you maybe maybe need to give us a you know a, a thirty second recap. Um, yeah, recap because uh, obviously not everyone listens to every episode. I know there are people out there that um. You know, it's partial listenership. So this week's listener is trying to pick up halfway through. They need to they need to understand. Okay. Well, I was talking about how the intrinsic content size of my dynamic icon button class was incorrect, and that resulted in the the button getting squished when it was housed inside of a a stack view, and that was harshing my buzz. And the reason was is because this UI control subclass I created. I wanted it to have an API that would be familiar to people who just use regular UI buttons, in which case it's common to use a UI edge inset, is that right? Or UI rectex tag. I, without it in front of me, I can't remember the exact uh, struct name. But anyway, in both those cases, you you basically say, I want the content of this view to be inset by some values. And the it, the, the, the struct has these properties, left, right, top, bottom, or or whatever. And you typically put values in there, the idea is like, I want it five pixels, five points from the top and 10 from the left and right and five from the bottom, whatever, right? Technically speaking, you can put negative numbers in there to outset it, but that might not necessarily, it, it, it's technically possible. I, I don't really see it practically done because most views clip to bounds. So it's really just for expressing an inset like, like it says on the tin. And guess what, Scotty? Naming things matters. They even say it's one of the hardest problems in computer science. I believe I didn't study it, but that's what I've heard. Anyway, so you, you, you typically put positive values in there but since we're not doing layout using you know calculated frames that we're setting we're using i'm translating this the, these values to take the intent of the api consumer and translate that into the constants for uh, uh, the the layout constraints so that i basically have a container view which is pinned to the you know leading trailing top and bottom edges of the of of of, the, of self of the view itself and I set the, the set the values for the constant values for those con, those constraints. Now, of course, you know if you take the if you just take a, let's say you have a value of five on trailing, it will actually 
not do what you're expecting to do. It'll push it outwards, and it can make some very weird results again because most views are, are, are end up being clipped to bounds, masked to bounds, whatever. And so... Um, so you, you, you have to have negative values to get what you want. So whatever, call a difference in the implementation between those two worlds, but uh, you have to make the translation. So, um, there, that's the way that I calculate the intrinsic content size of the entire thing. I'm basically saying, well, what is the, the intrinsic content size of the icon view that, that is contained within the button? And then you also have to get the padding values, which are expressed with that. So the padding values, I was taking them from the, the layout, the, the, the auto layout constraints, taking those constants. And since they are negative values, it was screwing up. And so as a result, when it would go through a layout pass, it would just basically keep compressing and compressing something. And the particular design I was using was a perfect circle, which is one of the features of the, the icon view because it's something we use. And I was saying, why is it my perfect circle turning into a racetrack? Well, that's why, because the intrinsic content size was off. It was not taking the absolute value of, of the, the, the constant. And, and so that was part of the issue. The other issue was that, again, with, with stack views, if you, if you actually go through and read the, the, the descriptions, you know, and, and many people do not, and I kind of understand why, because a new API comes along, sometimes there's a lag between when the, when, when the API is available and when the documentation comes out, but if you actually read through, it does explain what the different modes are, because a stack view to contain views has to figure out how to deal with its own constraints because you may have a stack view that's pinned to a view that is of a fixed width, like the the width of the screen, so it can't go beyond that. And so you're you're asking the stack view to contain X number of other views. And and so in order to figure out what to deal with them, it asks it looks for their intrinsic content size and also looks to see what their compression behavior is and figures out what can you do because it's got to go through each of the arranged subviews and say, Can I compress you? Would that be okay? Or you know, what is the actual minimum size you're supposed to have? And so on and so forth down the line. So if that's not correct, it, you will get not the results you're looking for. And so, um, but the other thing to know, and, and maybe it's not obvious until you use stack view a lot, is that, you know, when you contain something inside a stack view, it basically adds a bunch of, of, of constraints itself. If you go to inspect something, if you go look at a, at a view hierarchy in, in Xcode, uh, you can basically inspect any element and say, what are the what are the constraints that have been applied to them? And one of them are, are you can see something called UI-SV, which is the prefix. Those are constraints. Those are, are that are added by the stack view itself to try and make things work. And that, that gives a clue. Um, that will basically tell you what the stack view had to do in order to make things, uh, to resolve ambiguities. And, um, and, that's kind of interesting. And so that made me have the idea that, you know, it's, it may not, that may not do what you want. So another technique you can use, it it seems a a little annoying and it it kind of is, but you can contain, before you add your button to a stack view, uh, you can contain it within its own view and set its behavior. And that's what I really wanted to do because in this particular case, we want it to be pinned to the top and then let it take up whatever space is needed on the bottom and not pin it. So in other words, it doesn't get stretched. It kind of, it will take up just the space it needs and stay in a fixed location. And that's kind of critical because one of the nice things a stack view will do is it will basically adjust its height to be the height 
you know, of, of the high, of the tallest one that's needed for it. And the reason for this particular uh, behavior is because you have an array of buttons and some labels below it will take up two lines or three lines and others will take just one. And you want the stack view to take the height of whatever the, 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 the tallest item in there. So when I put it within the containing view, had an accurate and intrinsic content view, all of a sudden everything started to work and I was very, very pleased. But as I said, kind of, you know, I'm sure Georg saying, I never make stupid mistakes. Fuck that. You do. Everybody does. You know, you're tired or whatever. You, you've you been working on something else and and you're, you're wondering why something is just not working and it almost inevitably it's just something silly that you missed while you're translating between different ways of expressing the, the same concept, as was the case here. So I very much appreciate the, the good-natured ribbing that's out there. And I'm sure I've made said completely asinine, stupid things about Jupiter because I know nothing about it. And I know Georg is, 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 a, is an avid, uh, uh, you know, astrologer. I think that's the phrase. Not astrologer. What do you call it? Somebody who understands. <laughs> now he's laugh, laughing like crazy. <laughs> now you can't. That's, that's next week's that's week. Next week. You, don't, like... you don't know the difference between an astrologer and an astronomer. astronomer. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Georg is out there right now consulting just, his charts just, as, like, to, yeah. as to whether your anus will be in the Pisces of your whatever. <laughs> that's right. He's going to be all up in my anus about this. <laughs> But you know we're all we're all good-natured people. We're all, you know everybody's capable of making mistakes. I'm happy to share them with you, so you can at least make different mistakes. But it all comes down to the fact that you you know I I will say this and then I'll shut up. You know it's very easy for people to to complain about other people's frameworks, and then the, of course you know the frameworks we all use the ones produced by Apple. But you know uh, it, it, you know. It's actually really hard to do. Guess what? Um, you know, you may have something that works perfectly for your first cases, and then other people start doing things, uh, doing things that you might not have you contemplated. And uh, making something that truly is reusable is not an easy task. But when it is, it makes a huge difference because when you know that way, you can improve things uh, and have a, a much larger impact across your app if you really do uh, have reusable components. And that. Ladies and gentlemen, was the whole point of this exercise to, to once again remind people is that this whole thing started is because I wanted to build a series of reusable components that would have the right resizing behavior as the preferred content size changes and so that you could have it scale the, the type, scale the iconography, and, and lay itself out properly. Well, there we are. If the people who've been waiting with bated breath for the last 48 hours because we failed to deliver in 24 for this, this thing, they should now either be disappointed or <laughs> over the moon, depending on how they view the last 10 minutes that you have just given oh, them. There. Yes, I can. I am sure they are over the moon. Let's keep, let's keep the, uh, the space references going. They are over the moon. Okay. Yes, there we are. All right, Scott, it's all you. Go ahead and tell us something. It's not what I, it's, I, I just want us to take us to a sort of um, maybe a, a way back discussion or a way forward discussion or uh, something I picked up on uh, last week was... Um, a little Twitter storm by Drew McCornack. Mm. Um, Drew uh, is part of the um, a team that writes a Mac app, uh, which the name is totally escaping me. It's the uh, Agenda. That's it. Sorry. Totally, totally blanked out there. Um, and he was just picking up on a tweet from uh, someone called Matt Ronge, who, who I don't know um, at all. I have been back through some of his tweets. He seems a very reasonable guy. Um, and he'd said uh, a few days ago, I still love beautifully crafted Mac apps. 
But putting my business hat on, I know it's no longer a viable business model. And that set a few people going, but Drew was uh, was one of these. Um, he said, I hear this a lot. And as someone who actually lives off Mac software, I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm earning more than I ever have. And I know Mac apps and I know Mac apps that dwarf anything that has come before in terms of sales. Uh, but the bit I really want to pick up is he then said, I think there is a rosy picture of what desktop software was 10 to 15 years ago. I think there, I think there was uh, mostly a boutique business. I remember, remember we all got super excited because Delicious Library managed to sell a lot on launch. But apps like Sketch probably outsell that every day. And I think that was the key that got me. You know, are we being nostalgic about the Mac? And... How much, um, you know, how popular it was or, or what was going on with it? Because he is right. I mean, there are many Mac apps out there now. I mean, look at, you know, Sketch, Agenda that Drew is on and, and many others. Um, he goes on to say, you know, there are many companies out there now with like, you know, 10 employees doing just a Mac app. Whereas, you know, he can't really, you know, there was maybe Omni and Panic and... You know, maybe one or two others back 10, 15 years ago who you could name as his companies with, with you know, more than one person or two people in them about the Mac. And it just did make me think, you know, are we nostalgic about how great or how, not great, great, but great is fine, how popular the Mac used to be? Um, I remember when I came to the Mac in 2006 as a developer, finding any resource on how to develop for the Mac. I mean, you think it's hard now. Um, at least you can tap off some of the iOS stuff, and there is even more. There was literally nothing. The reason I started doing podcasting um, back then, in uh, I think January 2007, I released the first episode of Late Night Coco, is because I couldn't find any resources, and I was just scrabbling around the internet trying to find anybody who would talk to me about Mac development so I could learn stuff. So, whereas now, you know, yes, we're very critical, we, we moan a lot, um, but really is, and we say, oh, does Apple still care about the Mac? But is the Mac actually in a better place now than it was 10 to 15 years ago? What's your thoughts on that? I have a couple. I mean, I think objectively more Macs have been sold. Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, when when OS ten came out, for 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 me as as a former Next developer from day one, you know, from the day that the 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 first developer previews of what was it called Rhapsody were out there, kind of dwarfed the addressable market that that Next ever had, and so we were all excited. And part of the reason why people who were in the Next campus that they they realized that they were great, powerful APIs, well built, well designed frameworks that meant that you could start at a much higher base level than than your Windows brethren, certainly at the time and maybe even arguably still today. But I think that there was this idea that exactly as you pointed out, you know, you looked at the success of, of delicious monsters software and you thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, I want to do that. I could possibly do that. There was even some kind of chatter that went around uh, that, that there were some of the kind of gray beards from the old next days that said, I think that all the, the, the large companies, the Adobe's of the world who had been shipping Mac software, but had been using, you know, the old MetroWorks compiler and frameworks and so on and so forth, who knew nothing about AppKit, they said, you know, go take a, a next developer out to lunch, go acquire their software, you know, go get their expertise because it will give you a head start. And so, um, and now I think, you know, Apple ships in every quarter what they used to ship in, in a year 
not that long ago. So the addressable market is definitely bigger, but I think two things have happened. One is one is that, you know, people had expertise, an app kit, and then UI kit said, you know, they basically looked to where the new gold rush was, and everybody thought that, that you could get rich doing iOS apps, and some people did, but then you realize that there was this downward price pressure, and that that kind of made it very, very difficult for people to, to charge money, no kind of recurring revenue stream that was possible without eventually doing things like subscriptions or whatever, but it was not an easy thing. So I think that that soured many of the indies who, who said, well, I wasn't lucky like everyone else, so I need to go back and do something else. And and I certainly experienced that doing Memory Miner. And the the other thing is that if you were a large company, finding people who who could take advantage of the frameworks and say that's the double-edged sword. It's like if you have something that gives you a lot of leverage and is is rather unlike the other what other people do, you know, then then and it's hard to find people. Then you say, okay, fine, I can't find people who can really take maximum advantage of of the frameworks that are on there. So the next best thing is to get an abstraction layer and let my throw my JavaScript guys at it or throw my whatever. Cutie kit, you know, guys at it, or 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 whomever, right? And I think that that's that kind of explains why why there is this self fulfilling thing. It's like if I, as a large company, produce an app, if I'm HP, and I've got to deliver a setup software for my printer and scanner, hell no, I'm not going to do a native thing. You, I mean, in an ideal world, you would, but you're just not going to because you just need to get something that is used once, doesn't necessarily have to be beloved. It can't be a complete, you know, terrible experience. It just needs to, to work. And that explains why kind of corporate apps tend to be done with cross-platform, you know, abstractions. And and so then it is left to the boutiques. And so I, I think Drew is absolutely right. And that, that if you are thoughtful about it and you just work, when I think of Drew McCormick and I think of any other successful indie, everybody think everybody just sees the success and they think it just happened to them. It's like, no, they work their asses off day in, day out, learning the frameworks, getting relationships with Apple, you know, to, to get help with technical issues or to, to make sure that the Apple evangelists knew about it so that they might get some, some airtime on the store or on stage or whatever. And it's a long, hard slog. And that's true with anything. That's independent of the framework. But that's there. That's what I think about it. Well, I think I, think I agree with everything you've said. Um, I also think the expectation of what software is has changed. I think, you know, through the reason that, you know, there were so many just indie developers back in the Mac days. Firstly, you know, the expectation of what your software looked like or did was a lot lower, and therefore it was perfectly possible for um, an individual to push out, you know, a good piece of software. Whereas I think, you know, Delicious Library and the Delicious Generation partly changed this. And we've had this discussion many times over the last 10 years that, you know, you went from when, when the Mac apps used to be included in the ADA awards, you know, you went from watching one developer go up on the stage to receive the award if a Mac app got one through to it being three, four, five, eight, whatever, you know. Um, so I think the expectation of what software is has meant that more, it, you know, it takes more effort, more teams to develop it. Um, but that can only work if it's financially viable to sell software that's got 10 developers on it or 20 developers on it. So I think although... You know, I think it is harder to produce Mac software, but it's not because the market's there. It's because you can no longer sit down, knock something up over the weekend, put it out, 
and sell it. And that is sort of become the same in iOS. When iOS first started, many people were like writing an app in a, in, in a, in a couple of days, putting out and having great success. Now, now to have great success, you need to either catch a unique idea, which you may have done in a weekend, or you've put shitloads of work into something to make it special for someone to, you know, that someone wants yours over, over something else. So um, I think it's, it, it's too quick to just say there is no future in the Mac. I think the future in the Mac is is different, and maybe that makes it um, uh, a little different. I mean, I know quite a few. I hang out on a Slack with a whole bunch of indie um, developers, and you know, they're they're one man. Many of them are one or maybe two people companies, um, and they're and they're mainly doing fine. Um, you know, however, many of them have been around a very long time, and would they be able to do that now? On if they started today. Yeah, that's speculation. Can't tell. Um, you know, you can never, um, never judge. You know, history would have repeat itself because who knows what one small decision change changes where you end up. You know, the one person you meet, the ad you happen to place that you weren't intending to, whatever else, they can all, they can all change things. But I think, I, I definitely think there is a future in certain Mac software. I think the phone has made it, you know, that you don't pay for software. That's whereas. You always used to pay for software, and definitely the prices are lower. Uh, many things used to be, you know, a lot more expensive than they are now. Um, so it is definitely a different environment. But I think to say, oh, you know, business has business hat on, you can't make Mac software work, is a simplification that's probably not true in my opinion. And I hope not, because obviously we're writing money well. So that will be very sad for us. Um, but again, one of the reasons we took on money well is we believe that. Um, the the sort of home budgeting market is an area where people will still pay for software uh, if it does what they need it to do. Um, so yeah. Anyway, it was a, I, I find it uh, an, an interesting discussion. And actually, yeah, we need indie developers because I can't remember where I read this. It's, it was in some on you know group or maybe it was a tweet. I really can't remember. But you know, someone did say, you know, if you want to get good support from Apple, the best thing to do right now is befriend an indie developer and wait long enough, and they'll work there, um, <laughs> and then they can help you out. So, which is kind of true because a lot of you know, when I came to the uh, came to the Mac in two thousand and six, which is way after you know people you know like you did, um, it's you know uh, many many of those who were being successful uh, back in those days of uh, are now um, you know were working, and, and a lot of the early iPhone. Uh, successful people are uh, Apple employees, and um, there we are. Well, gosh, Scotty, you know it's uh, it's coming up on twenty minutes. Should we? Should we? Yeah, yeah, we're doing, we're doing full show, John. You're not getting any of this half show stuff. All right, I think we've got okay, to go, go there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've uh, I, I've been remodeling my office for almost a year now. <laughs> it's because I've been remodeling my house, and so the office is always the lowest denominator. But I've just got it to the point where the walls are painted and. Um, you know, I had to empty the office out to do that. So now I'm in this mode of only bringing things back into the office that uh, that I really want in here and not allowing it to fill up with with crap. And it's been used as a storeroom as well for the last uh, you know the last year while I've been doing other modifications around the house. So um, it's it's meant to bring that, but it's also meant I've gone back to bringing my treadmill into the office and on a walking desk. Um, so I've gone back to walking every day. So now people used to listen many years ago. Will know that um, uh, I have a stand-up desk, and I used to put a, tra- a walking treadmill underneath it. And um, for for quite a long time, uh, several years, I would walk sort of you know 
uh, somewhere between sort of eight and sixteen miles every day while while working at, at my desk, and um, it was actually pretty good for my health. It was pretty good for my mental health. Um, I lost quite a lot of weight while doing it, and and I highly recommended it. But then uh, when I moved to a shared office, uh, I stopped doing it uh, partly because the treadmill sound was disturbing for for other people in the room. Um, whereas when you're in a room by yourself, it, it is it has a certain noise level, but it's a, it's a constant, and therefore, like a white noise, you just learn to shut it out, whereas you don't necessarily, if it's someone else's treadmill going on, and it's their, their steps you can hear or whatever else. Uh, but it's come back in, and so I've been uh, two two days now back on the, um, the walking desk, but it, it does mean when it's... <laughs> and I'm sort of finding it okay, but it, it's... You, know, you don't realize how much energy and how tiring it is to to um, sometimes be doing this. Hence why as soon as we started recording, which was at 5 p.m. my time, um, I am led on the couch at the other side of my office because my legs hurt too much from, from work today. But it is, it is um, I have to say that even doing, uh, and maybe this is just me and I'm interested in what Doing something physical while working, which does take a little while to get used to, and um, I'm thinking I'm, you know, I'm not used to it yet after two days, but yeah, I think I'm going to fall back into it. And I'm falling back into it faster than other people may get used to it the first time because I did it for several years. But just uh, for the last two days, anyway, uh, doing something physical while working, at the end of the day, uh, I am. Um, mentally less tired it seems to be that it's uh uh by using physical and mental energy during the day as opposed to just mental energy from sat there um i don't feel as tired at the end of the day so um i'm promise but it's just uh if you're one of these people who you know at the end of the day you're just mentally absolutely whacked out then um maybe looking at a standing desk or a walking desk or even and we've had anecdotal you know Go for a walk at lunchtime. Go for a run at, at lunchtime. Do some do something energetic. Um, maybe even just keep a few weights in your office and lift some weights or something. You know, uh, uh, but just I, I I do think this doing something physical rejuvenates our mental capacity. Um, so next week when you tune in, I said I've given up on that because I was too knackered. <laughs> And just strike this this part of the podcast off, just like so many others. But um, yeah, I just wanted to encourage people that it's uh, you know give it a go. I think it I think it works. And this is like the second time I'm doing it. And I'm reminded now, it's it's taken me a long time to go back to it. Partly because of getting my office sorted out. But equally, it's like oh, it is so easy just to sit down for the day. It is. I mean, I've got a really nice office chair. It's a Herman Miller chair. It's very um. Uh, you know, it, it's an ergonomic chair. It's very comfy to sit in for for eight to ten hours a day. I don't end up with any back problems out of it. So it's you know, it, it is very easy. And just the thought of oh, the effort to stand up has been putting me off, and it was quite difficult initially to to just mentally get myself back to it. But now I'm back to it. It's like yeah, I, I remember why I used to do this. The there are benefits to this. It's not just a a trendy thing. It's not just um, you know, this is what the hipsters do. Uh, I think it's, um, I mean, obviously I'm having to get used to doing certain things, typing while walking and things again. So maybe I'm a little, a little slower this it, it, uh, on some things at the moment, but it's, um, yeah, I, I recommend for, for mental health and, uh, uh, just, uh, capabilities. If you've got the opportunity, 
do something physical in your day and see if it makes a difference. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot more to add other than an observation that uh, that for 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 young kids, I've, I've seen you know reports, articles, TV segments about how you know poorly performing uh, schools. They you know one of the ways that they get them to work better is they get the kids to stand up and that it's not just that they get exercise, but they do work while exercising, you know, mental work, you know, they do their lessons and, and it, it, it kind of harkens back to a, a more traditional way of, 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 of instruction. Um, if you're trying to, to help people understand something, asking them a question and having calls and responses, it, it's amazing. And, and it, the, the modern way of working could not possibly be more unnatural, more against the, 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 the 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 way that a human body is supposed to, to to operate so good on you for doing it and i think i, w- I will add that you know I, i've always enjoyed bicycling and w- one silver lining of the pandemic of working from home is that it's a lot easier for me to go out and have a ride and sometimes i've got a problem i'll just go out and have a ride and, and it, it just either relaxes me or oftentimes it will become obvious where my error is just because i relax my mind a little bit um, but the other thing that I've started doing is that, that there are a couple places around the city that have these exercise machines that really um, are as fun to use as traditional playground equipment. The whole thing of it is, though, is that it's using your fat ass as a weight. So you're like kind of, you know, doing a pull up. And, and, and if you weigh a lot like I do now, you know, uh, it, it, it's very difficult. So you're really getting quite a bit of a workout, but it's it's putting the hardest work first, which I suppose is interesting. And then if you're not careful, which I wasn't, you can be incredibly sore the next day, which I was. And then you have to kind of work through it and then realize that you have to stretch. But yeah, it's it, it, it's kind of sad. And, and maybe this is not a, this is like an, an old gray beard problem um, because I think that that was always the idea. It's like, I'm so devoted to what I'm doing. I don't care if I kill my posture and kill my relationships and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I think I'm sure the younger generation says you're out of your mind. That's stupid. You're doing it the wrong way. Um, so this may be more a reminder for, for, for us graybeards. But yeah, move your damn body and get, some, get the blood oxygen level up and uh, you'll do better work. Well, gosh, Scotty. Now should we bring this home? I think, John, you should remind the old greybeards where they can get in touch with you. Well, if you want to go out and, and, and be like Georg and just, you know, savage us, come do it in the place where people have come to expect that. Twitter. All right, now we're finally telling the truth about Twitter. Twitter is just a mud fest. Not always, but it typically is. Uh, but if you want to find me, you'll find me as Jembe. That's D-J-E-M-B-E, like the West African drum. And Scotty, if people want to give you encouragement, either for you to keep going with your treadmill or encourage you to wear, you know, long flowing scars that get caught in the treadmill so that you fall over and, and, are, and are choked and that people don't have to listen to us anymore, where might they do that? Wow, <laughs> that was dark. Sorry, Scotty. <laughs> I was thinking more like, yeah, if someone wanted to see my what was it, my astrological chart or something based on your your lack of understanding, or just which planet they'd like me to be on if they really did want to do astronomy instead of astrology, oh, then maybe so they could do it on Twitter, where I am Mac Devnet, and I love to hear from everybody, even if you're nasty to me, yeah. because so few people talk to me, I'll take anything. Yeah. It's, there we are. Well, John, we've uh, we we managed to wrap up the failed episode and carry on and uh, 
and, and give a new one. So um, I, I think that you know, this this will be it. For, I think letting people hear from us twice in a week is is enough. So they're going to have to cope with us now for without us for another week. So it's um, if you have any final thing you just want to say to to encourage our, our listeners just to hang on in there until we're back. Stay strong. The world's getting back to, to normal. Get vaccinated if for some reason you haven't or convince your friends and family to get vaccinated so that we can get be done with this there. Or, of course, you could have just said, thanks for listening and until next time. You take care. I could have done that, but I didn't because I suck. All right. <laughs> <laughs> At least they professional for most of them. Thank <laughs> you.